That is by far one of my favorite descriptions, poetical points of worship to what should be the exclamation point of our lives. It's a corrective to my thinking every time I sing it. It takes my eyes of faith off of this moment and raises them to a higher throne. It takes me from the, the hurt and the angst and the frustration of any given moment and points me to where hunger and death will one day die, will forever live and abound in Christ. That is not my sermon, but man, what a song. We should sing it again. We're not going to, but we should. Philippians 4, take your Bibles and turn there. I'll move on so I don't ramble more. Philippians 4. We enter into the week of Thanksgiving ahead of us. I've been reflecting, pausing, thinking about what it is that I am thankful to the Lord for. I love this time of year. It's one of my favorite uh, in life and in my own Christian life. It's just a, a sweet time of worship for me. I think it ought to be for all of us as we reflect on all that God is and has done for us in life and especially in the last year. As I've thought specifically about our church family, and I haven't given a ton of thought to this because I haven't had to, the cream that rises immediately to the top as I consider Newton Bible Church is the abundance of sacrificial servants who make up this fellowship. Now you might just think that's just pastor patting us on the back to encourage us to keep doing stuff he doesn't want to do. It really is not. Especially in the last few months, I have witnessed over and over and over again. From the expected places, depths of sacrifice I've never seen before, and from unexpected places, new expressions of sacrifice that give me such joy in the Lord. I have watched you as a body serve one another so well, giving of yourself repeatedly to sacrifice for each other and for Christ ultimately. So I want to, as we head into Thanksgiving week, this is my give thanks to God sermon for you. It's to encourage and exhort you. It's to rejoice in all that God's doing in you. And there's no greater letter to turn to than the letter to the Philippian church. How I feel in this moment, I assume, is how Paul feels about the, felt about the Philippian church as they ministered to his need time and time again. For whatever reason, they lost touch with Paul, and they finally heard that he was in jail in Rome, and they gave out of their need sacrificially to meet Paul in his need, sent Epaphroditus, one of their leaders, to bless Paul with that gift, Epaphroditus almost died on the way. They were fretful over his future. He returns back with a report from Paul in the form of this letter to thank them for the joy that they have brought to his life through sacrificial giving. He also writes to encourage them with the, the sacrifice, the humility he sees in them, to flame, fan that into flame all the more. He writes this letter to them, namely pointing them to Christ in chapter 2, to call them to consider his sacrifice for them. The letter culminates then in chapter 4, in verses 14 through 23, when he gives kind of this explosion of praise to the Lord for what they've done and, and reminds them of the great prophet of sacrifice. Sacrifice means loss, 
not gain. That's kind of inherent in the word, isn't it? You sacrifice something, you give up and lose it never to recover. But in God's economy, apparently, according to Paul in Philippians 4, sacrifice is great gain. This is an obvious and noble truth, one that we've preached often from this pulpit, one you know well, that sacrifice is at the heart of the Christian gospel. From our scripture reading this morning in Genesis 42, we saw Jacob unwilling to sacrifice his son, sending him, not even knowing what the outcome would be, likely to have him return, but unwilling to risk what might happen with Benjamin so to get grain for his family. This is in contrast to God the Father, who willingly, joyfully, out of uh, abundant love for the world, sent his son to die in our place for our sins, to accomplish our salvation. Sacrifice is at the heart of the Christian gospel. Not only that, it's at the heart of the Christian faith. To, to walk in a manner worthy of that gospel has at its core to be sacrificial. That's why Paul says, after 11 chapters of explaining the gospel in 12.1, that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Your life is to be marked by sacrifice as a follower of the one who gave the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. And this, Paul says in Philippians 4, is full of great gain. Philippians 4 verse 14 says this, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. That giving and receiving, by the way, is accounting terminology. He's borrowing words from the economic world. He's relating to them in spiritual terms using the words of the economy world. No one, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only, verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Accounting terminology again. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you your spirit. You remember the story of the birthing of the church in Philippi, but let me remind you from Acts 16, Paul on his second missionary journey is working his way through Macedonia. The church itself was birthed in opposition and persecution. It was birthed in, in humble means. Women were the first to come to the faith, and the slave girl who had the demon cast out likely was a charter member of the church in Philippi. The Philippian jailer who first uh, opposed and persecuted Paul and Silas in prison, then was converted, he and his family, and are, uh, I would say, probably foundation stones of the church in Philippi. This caused all kinds of, of persecution and opposition from the town of Philippi. You remember, they, they basically booted Paul out the next day, and he went on his merry way to Thessalonica to face more opposition and more persecution. 
But this church in Philippi, birthed in opposition, also knowing persecution, was among some of the poorest of the poor. Likely they lost their job or at least their, their spot in the guild for their trade, that they couldn't have a place to sell their stuff in the marketplace. They lost family contact. They were deserted and put out of every relationship likely that was opposed to Christ. You'd think then that the very people who are the most harmed by the gospel would be the least likely to sacrifice to advance the gospel. you think they wouldn't want to touch the hot stove again. They would have learned their lesson. Getting burned once, you know what, I'm glad we've got fire insurance, we're in. Let's just play it safe and ride the storm and get through and be done. But instead, the Spirit of God working in them compels them to sacrifice, to advance the very gospel that was the cause of their persecution and their poverty. In verses 14 through 16, Paul gives a summary statement of their generosity. He says, you, you've displayed over the years this constant support of my ministry. It says in verse 14, it was good and kind of you to share in my sufferings with me. You knew I was suffering, and so you, you joined in my suffering by giving out of your need so that my suffering could be alleviated. You partnered with me in gospel work. He knew that these like-minded believers in Philippi were those who were willing to suffer for the offense of the cross. They proved that not just when he was there, but also by their constant, continual support of his ministry. As he made his way from the city of Philippi, remember in Acts 16, he then headed to Thessalonica and faced more increasing opposition in that town. As he faced that opposition, he, uh, the church in Philippi heard about that. It was about a 95-mile journey from Philippi to Thessalonica. But while he was there, he says in verse 16, even there you ministered to my need again and again and again. We don't know how long Paul was in Thessalonica. The Acts account is three Sabbaths. It could have been longer, up to three months. It wasn't long. The time to strike and help was short The church in Philippi was spring-loaded to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. They were so impacted by what God had done for them in Christ, they couldn't help but jump into action when they heard that their brother Paul had a need. As they themselves suffered, they gave out of their suffering to bless Paul, to help Paul. Wouldn't it have been better for them, don't you think, to forget Paul? To praise God for Paul, to rejoice in the gospel brought to them by the feet, hands, and mouth of Paul, but to try to rebuild their lives in their town, separate from Paul. He's kind of a flashpoint, kind of a lightning rod guy. In every town he went into, he brought with him opposition and persecution because he preached the gospel of Christ. Wouldn't it have been better for this church in Philippi to worry about their own need? To kind of step back from the sacrifice of the gospel and say, you know what? We got a lot going on here. We need to kind of hunker down, hone in, and figure this out. Wouldn't it have been more appropriate for the church in Philippi, instead of sending a gift with Epaphroditus, to send a letter with Epaphroditus? Saying, hey, Paul, you're in Rome. There's an influential church in Rome. From Rome, you can reach all the churches of the Roman Empire. Hey, we have a great need here in Macedonia. Joe and Bob and Harry and Frank and Larry are all out of work because of the gospel. 
Can you help us out, Paul? Can, can you get a collection together and have that sent to our church so that we can have alleviation of our poverty? I wonder about you this morning. Is your sacrifice in ministry to others worth it? Haven't you asked yourself this? Don't, don't you have needs to meet? And in fact, the very things you do to bless someone else is actually counterintuitive to your own life often. Giving of that time, that money, that effort, that emotional, spiritual investment, it's often beyond what you even have available to do what you need to do, let alone what God's calling you to do with this brother or this sister. It doesn't at all kind of seem pointless, worthless. The, the cost of sacrifice is too much, a bridge too far, a tower too high, a tunnel too long. What other metaphor can I throw at this? Well, you know the answer to the question, but I want to prove it to you from the text. The answer is no. There's great profit in sacrifice. And Paul lays this out for them because he wants to encourage them. He wants to cause them to rejoice as he rejoices in them. There's great gain in sacrifice. The first is that sacrificial giving profits the giver in verse 17. Sacrificial giving profits the giver. Paul's being careful in verse 17 to let them know that he's not thanking them so that he can get something out of them again. He's not sending a thank you letter so that they'll turn around and write another check and send it back with Epaphroditus. Instead, he wants them to know that he's joyful over their sacrificial giving because it will profit to their account. He's using those accounting terms. He says, hey, my ledger's full. My bank account's balanced. I'm good. I'm overflowing, actually. I've got more than enough. But I'm so glad you gave so that it can increase to your credit, he says in verse 17. So it can be abounding to your account. You remember how Paul started the letter in chapter 1? He, he rejoiced. He, he told them how he prays for them and he rejoices in them constantly and because he's convinced that what God started in them, he'll finish in them. Numbers 8 through 10, he, he says, here's how I pray for you. And one of the key aspects of his prayer for them is that they would abound in love for one another and that they would be fruitful in God, that they would have the fruit of God flowing out of them, the fruit of righteousness abounding in their lives. Now he closes the letter, and he's praying that still for them, even as he sends the letter. But now he closes the letter, and he says, listen, God's already answered those prayers in you. You've already proven that you're full of love for each other. You're already abounding in the very fruits of righteousness that I've been praying about. And he says, I want that to continue all the more to be credited to your account. And obviously he means their spiritual eternal account. He's pointing them to the, the great gain of godliness that is to counter the greed of living in a physical world. He's pointing them to, to the joy of eternal reward based upon the fruits of righteousness in the Christian life. Now from John 15, we know this is not us doing this. This is not us producing fruit, taping plastic apples to the tree of our Christianity, Right? We know from John 15, this is God's work as we attach to the vine. We abide in Christ. His fruit is produced out of us. And Paul says here in Philippians 4, that's what's 
happening and it's crediting to your account. The fruit of righteousness is producing eternal gain. That's why Jesus says, do not seek first things in this world, but seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. Lay up treasure not on earth where moth and rust corrupt, but lay up treasure in heaven. Pay it into the eternal spiritual bank account that the Lord of heaven is keeping for every believer. He says to them, you've laid up eternal treasure through temporal sacrificial giving. This is the greatest profit available to you personally, individually, in spiritual sacrifice. Now we often think, at least we're prone to think of of spiritual sacrifice or sacrifices in the body of Christ in terms of, you know, if I do this for the Lord, then, then that will come back around to me, kind of a Christian karma deal. And if I do it just so and do it with the right attitude, then God will bring that back around to me somehow, right? And we think of that in terms of, of I can't outgive God, you know, all those good fun phrases that we use. And if I sacrifice this here, certainly he'll, he'll pay it back to me in some way. Paul says here in Philippians 4, your greatest return on your investment is not a temporal return. It's an eternal return on a temporal investment. That should blow your mind. See, the problem is you're not thinking, it's not that you're thinking too carnally. That might be true. You're just not thinking big enough. When you think of temporal giving, bringing temporal blessing, you're, you're just not thinking big enough. It's actually greater than that. There's actually more joy in the sacrifice of giving in ministry than just you'll get that given back to you at some point. Paul points them to an eternal spiritual reward. That real-time sacrifice in the here and now yields fruit credited to you for all of eternity. Explain that, I don't fully understand, but praise God it's true. As he takes account of sacrifice and blesses for eternity those who've given it. Investing temporally, reaping eternally. This is what Paul says thrilled him so much about their gift for him. It was not even that he he was well supplied, it was that they had spiritual credit before the Lord. Now we know this is not spiritual credit for their salvation. We know this is not eternal life earned by their good works. We know that that is by grace Alone, But we also know that grace that has saved and rescued us calls us to good works that were appointed to us beforehand. This is why verse 10 in Ephesians 2 follows verses 7 through 9 in Ephesians 2. And this is exactly what Paul's talking about. You have lived in those good works, and it is credited to your account. And I rejoice in that, Paul says. The second gain of sacrificial giving is that it pleases God. This is astounding. Paul says, you have pleased God, in verse 18, with your giving to me. He says, I've received that full gift you sent. Epaphroditus gave me more than enough. I am abounding in all of that. I'm well supplied, he says. But now at the end of the verse, he describes that gift with a string of modifiers. He he speaks more about the, the spiritual aspect of this than he does about the temporal. I'm well supplied, but let me tell you, this was a, an acceptable and a fragrant offering to the Lord. It was pleasing to God. 
Paul is obviously employing Old Testament language from the sacrificial system of the Old Testament to help them understand the, the aroma given off by the sacrifice of their service to him. Wafted up heavenward into the nostrils of God, as it were, and was pleasing to him. This is the divine perspective on your sacrificial giving in real time. As you, rightly motivated, compelled by the grace given to you, driven by the love of God for you and His love for others through you, you give yourself or something you possess to bless someone else. And you sacrifice for them. This wafts its way up into heaven, into the nostrils of God. And as He breathes it in, He's pleased with you. He delights in you, friend. He's glad about you. He rejoices in you that the fruit of His Son is coming out in your life. And it's to His praise and He takes delight in it. This is all the more meaningful as you understand what's happening in the Philippian church. Turn back with me to 2 Corinthians 8. I want you to see this. You know this text, but let me remind you of it. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1-5. through Paul writing to the church in Corinth, calling the church in Corinth to to be generous, and he uses the Macedonian church, and certainly he means the Philippian church. I I think there's probably a few others involved, but I think the the Philippian church is probably the tip of the spear here. He says in in 2 Corinthians 8.1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Stop, time out. Two plus two does not equal four in verse two. Correct? This is not a mathematical equation of human logic. You don't put pencil to paper with those parts of the equation and come out with what Paul comes out with in verse two. So we put together a severe test of affliction. That's part one. Abundance of joy, part two. So severe test of affliction plus abundance of joy plus extreme poverty equals misery? Now, what do you put in that line? Affliction, testing of faith, at best, patience and tribulation, persistence in prayer. I mean, fill in some other spiritual attribute, right? What did it equal in their existence? A wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What a picture of extreme poverty, difficult affliction, and an abundance of joy giving themselves first to God, producing out of them sacrificial service to others, giving above and beyond their means, above and beyond what even the Apostle Paul thought was wise. Did you catch that? Beyond what I would have told him to do. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. Beloved, this is the full circle of sacrifice. You know, it's... 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1 started with the grace of God in them. 
then led to this abundance of joy in their severe test of affliction, producing an overflowing, abounding gift to others as they gave themselves to the Lord and by his will to others. So sacrifice starts and ends with God. Because of the grace of God at work in them, they sacrificed to the Lord and it was for the Lord and it compelled them to give more and more. The entirety of their sacrifice then is wrapped around God. He's the Alpha and the Omega of their sacrifice. And Paul says that is pleasing to God back in Philippians 4. This pleases God when this kind of sacrifice is is derived from His grace, carried along by His joy, and expressed out of love for Him and for others. That pleases God. This is your story. This is your sacrifice, never perfectly, never sanctified fully, but driven along by grace. Why do you do what you do? Why do you give your time, talent, effort, money, emotional vitality and strength and spiritual desire and and effort to others? Because you're such a great Christian? No, because of the grace of God upon you. You can't get away from him. And having been so touched by his grace, you can't help but give to others. The third gain of sacrificial giving is that it provokes God. That's verse 19. Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Sacrificial giving provokes God to meet every need of the one who gave him. By provoke, I don't mean he's reticent or needing to be provoked. I just mean it stirs him to do this. It beckons his action on your behalf. Notice how Paul chooses his words carefully. He says, my God. He's reminding them that, listen, again and again in my life and in my ministry, Paul says, I have been at the end of everything. The end of my strength, the end of my resources, the end of my ability, the end of my knowledge, the end of my wisdom, the end of my opportunity. I've been at the end of me hundreds of times. And his testimony all throughout all of his writings is, Christ strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so he says to them, my God will supply all your needs. I've put him to the test. I've tried it out, he's saying. And you can trust that God will meet every need you have which is really helpful in their situation because Paul is completely unable to reciprocate anything they've done for him, right? One of the poorest men on the planet. They've given him a sacrificial gift and, and he can't even write back like friends normally do and say, thank you so much for your gift. I look forward to when I can do this in, in return, right? We do that all the time. Hey, thanks for having our family over. We'll, we'll have you over next month. We say that right on the way out the door. Paul's smart enough to know he can't even say something remotely close to that. Hey, thanks so much for your gift. Next time I run around, I'll take you out to McDonald's. I mean, he can't even say that. He can't afford it. No, he just says, listen, my God will supply all your needs. I can't do it, but my God is more than able. This is the gain of sacrifice. It provokes God to meet our needs. And he says that God will supply every need. He's not going to miss one of their needs. He'll supply all of them. This, you know, is not the prosperity gospel. Paul does not say 
if you sacrifice to God, it's seed that goes into the ground that returns on you tenfold or a hundredfold or a thousandfold. So just send money to my bank account as the preacher and then you'll be blessed and rich. That's not what Paul's saying. He says that God will supply every need that you have. You know, in God's economy of operation in this world, he defines need very differently than you and I do. Thankfully, honestly. We often think of needs in temporal categories, here and now type of stuff. But God thinks of of need in spiritual dimensions. He defines needs as anything that is necessary for us to live the life that he's calling us to live in light of our redemption. I think that's a fair definition. If you had to define how God thinks about your needs, what would you say they are? Here's my attempt. He defines needs as anything that is necessary for me to live the life that he's calling me to live in light of my redemption. In other words, he'll give you everything you need so as to please him with your life. In his sovereignty, he knows exactly what you need when you need it. That you can be pleasing in his sight. He also says he'll supply your every need and he says he'll do that according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Not out of the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus, but according to. This is an abundant supply in response to your meager sacrifice. And your meager sacrifice is really just an expression of that which God has already given to you, right? We just sang that earlier. We're just giving back to God that which he's given to us. He's entrusted to us as stewards, and we're just returning it. We're trying to use it well. And in response to that meager sacrifice, if you can even call it that, God blesses us according to our riches, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, a, a wellspring endlessly flowing with eternal riches in Christ. God, having made known his sacrificial heart to you through his Son, As Paul says in Romans 8, how will he not also with him then give you all things? Everything you need to do that which he's called you to do and be that which he's called you to be. Every sacrifice he's laid before you. Every opportunity before you to serve and honor him in every relationship. He will meet you in that moment and give you everything you need to do it. Do you believe that? If you go forward into that sacrifice, trusting in in your strength or your ability, you know what happens. But as you depend upon God in Christ through His Spirit to supply your every need, He will use you in your sacrifice to be pleasing to Him. This means that there's really no risk in sacrifice. It's kind of inherent in sacrifice to have risk, right? Playing the markets with a little bit of money you have It's sacrificial in the sense that it's risky. It might prove to be the financial sacrificial lamb that you never see again. It's inherent in sacrifice to take risk, but really sacrifice in God's economy is not risky at all. It's carried along by His grace. It's it's as unto Him and it's responded to by Him in that He meets every need that we have in His riches, according to His riches in Christ Jesus. 
So beloved, do you want to put yourself in that place of rich spiritual blessing this morning? Where you open the faucet of, of God's kindness upon your life. Then you humble yourself before Him and out of love for Him and by His grace seek to be given to Him in every category, sacrificially offered before Him, provoking His blessing upon you. Fourth gain of sacrifice is that it praises God. That's verse 20. It praises God. He starts tying things together in verse 20 with this doxology of praise. This ageless and limitless God who will meet all of our needs in accordance to His infinite resources deserves limitless praise, don't you think? That this is how He's going to operate in in light of our sacrifice, doesn't he then deserve unending praise in light of that? Paul's overwhelmed by the grace saturated sacrifice of the Philippian church. And so he gives eternal praise to God, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. God is the central and consuming reality to all biblical sacrifice. The Alpha, the Omega, the nucleus around which everything revolves and rotates and turns in sacrifice is the great God of heaven. And Paul says it is to his praise when we sacrifice for him. And the last gain of sacrificial giving in this text is that it promotes relationships. Promotes relationships. Paul ends this letter with joy as he greets them from those who are with him. It's kind of a, a typical greeting in that he sends greetings at the end of the letter, but it's kind of atypical because he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Remember other letters, like maybe the book of Romans, since I referenced that already, chapter 15 is entirely given to naming people. Greet this person, greet that person, say hey to that person, say hi to that person, get that person back in line, say hi to them. Here at the end of Philippians, he says, greet every saint. Once in a while at the end of a letter, he'll be more generic. He'll just say, greet them all. Greet all the saints. Here he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Maybe I'm nitpicking at Greek words. I don't think I am. This is crucial. He's not interested in a generic greeting for all. He's rather very personal in his greeting to each of them. Can't name them all, but wants them to know that all of them are dear to him and deserve his greeting. Displaying by that greeting that every saint in Philippi was dear to him because of how they had treated him. How out of their affliction they had sacrificed for him. He wants them to know that he loves them and cares about them and rejoices in them and longs to be with them. He goes on to say that all the brothers who are with him greet them, especially the the ones who are of Caesar's household, he says. Then he ends in verse 23 with that typical invocation of God's blessing upon them as he, he calls for God's grace to be on all of them. But the point, I think, of, of that closing section is to call us to the reality of sacrifice producing and promoting deep affection in relationships. This is how sacrifice works in relationships. Relationships are carried along by you giving of yourself for the sake of the other. Relationships can, can be sustained for a while if 
you're both in it for yourself. As long as you're both getting what you both want, it goes on for a while. This is why usually, you know, like three, four years in, absent of Christ, married couples say, I've fallen out of love. What they mean is that they've ceased getting what they wanted and were getting originally in the marriage. And that sacrificial investment from the other has dissipated or changed because of the nature of married life. And now they're like, you know what? I don't want this anymore. I want to find someone who gets me, who understands me, who hears me, who loves me. What they mean is I want someone who loves me like I love me and does for me what I want me to have done for me. That's not the nature of of biblical relationships, is it? Genesis to Revelation, it's all about sacrificial commitment. It's all about giving of self for the sake of the other in the relationship. And to the level you sacrifice is the level to which you show your commitment. Correct? And the more you sacrifice showing your level of commitment to the relationship, the more that person typically responds, especially if they're in Christ as you are, responds in kind. Willing now to give more sacrifice for the sake of the relationship. And now you get this symbiotic union of of oneness in marriage designed by God's wisdom and carried along by His grace where sacrifice and sacrifice build relational harmony and unity built upon commitment to one another, exercised and expressed through sacrifice. That's what Paul's saying here in Philippians 4. I want every one of you to be greeted because I love all of you. Because out of your, sac- out of your need, you sacrifice for me. And they loved Paul because of out of his need, they, he sacrificed for them risking his very life to bring them the gospel. They've never forgotten that. And they love him for it. And they sacrifice for him in response to it. And so when you sacrifice as you have over the last few months, when you give of things that I know you yourself need, and I watch you over and over and over again, and I don't see the half of it, You are in that sacrifice promoting relationships within the body of Christ. Building up the body of Christ, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as you lay aside your selfish ambition and your vain-hearted attempts to make it all about you. Another way to say this would be to lay this rubric over your own heart and ask yourself, How are your relationships with others today? I hardly have to ask the questions, but I do because I'm the preacher. Are they strained? Are you struggling? Start with the church. I mean, do you feel like you're not connected here? I feel like you're on on the fringe, have a hard time getting in and being a part, and that's a real deal. I don't mean to make light of that. That's hard. It's hard to break into a church family that's well established and thriving in the Lord. I get that. We pray often that God would make us a welcoming and joy-filled people that welcomes new people in all the time. But it's still hard. You don't have the relational connection that some of these other folks do in the, in the building. So what's God's plan for you forward to, to get involved and get invested? To sit back and wait? Hope that someone sees you standing against the wall and not part of the deal and 
pursues you and pulls you in, well, I mean, you can do that, and hopefully by God's kindness that'll happen. But over and over and over again in Scripture, it's laying self aside and jumping in whole hog. Pursuing sacrificial giving in relational context for the sake of glorifying God and building those other believers in Christ. Bring it closer to home. How's your home life? How's your relationship with your kids, parents? How about you, teenagers, with your parents? How's that going? Well, but they... Philippians 4 would say, but you. You can't answer for them, nor are you responsible for them. Parents, you with your kids, are you sacrificially investing? I know you are. You kind of have to. It's the nature of parenting. But is that driven along by grace? Are you giving yourself first to the Lord and then to your kids? Is your daily sacrifice for them carried along by your love for Jesus? Your awe at his sacrifice for you? This will promote the relationships in your home. Husband and wife, how's your marriage? How's your love for one another? How's your communication with each other? You enjoy being together? Is it harder now than it was eight years ago or better now than it was eight years ago? There's more to say there, but certainly part of it is, are you sacrificing for them? Are you showing your commitment to your spouse by regularly saying no to self and yes to them as you say yes to God? This promotes relationships as we see between Paul and the Philippian church, and this gives glory and praise to God. As you go your way this afternoon, I trust you'll think through these truths and apply them to your life. I think it would be a good exercise for you to just pause on this Thanksgiving week and and assess where it is that you're sacrificing. Not as a a tab that you keep between you and the Lord as though, okay, Lord, time for you to pay me back. But as a way for you to see the fruit of the work of Christ coming out of you. And where you see that, where he's compelled you by his spirit to give of yourself for the sake of others. Stop and rejoice. Give thanks to God for that. That's his work in you. And stand awed that this would be pleasing to him. That he would be so kind to let you live a life that that pleases the God of heaven. Rejoice in that. And then as you evaluate those things and you're encouraged by that, can I I ask you the flip side of, of an exhortational question? Where could you be encouraged to greater sacrifice? And and I would ask it this way, where are you short on time? Or short on money? Or short on talents or gifts or abilities? Maybe you have a need in an area where you, you never have enough. Never enough time, never enough money, never enough skill, whatever. Maybe like the Philippian church, we need, to, we need to follow their example here and in that spot, grow in sacrifice. Maybe it's actually right there that God wants you to lay down your most costly sacrifice to him. In service to others, trusting him to meet your every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
put him to the test, and find him faithful. Beloved, I praise God for you. Every time I think of you, my heart overflows with joy. Why? Because you're so great? Well, you're kind of cool. But not because of that. Because God's amazing. And he's at work in you. All praise to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the joy it is as a body of Christ to stand back and evaluate how it is that you're at work among us. Father, it is astounding that you would allow us, by your grace, to produce fruit that then is pleasing to you and honoring to you. Lord, thank you for allowing us to be a part of that process. Help us to be more faithful, more fervent, more trusting, more sacrificial, that you might do more through us for the glory of your name and the advance of your good news. Thank you, Lord, for all you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. In response to God's word, we echo Paul's prayer in Colossians 1.10, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. Let's stand as we sing of that prayer. We don't have a meeting here tonight. We have our small groups meeting at 6 o'clock tonight. If you're a part